Amen. Thank you, Chad. Good morning. Good to have you. As the giving teams pass the baskets around, you can also give at restorationlex.com slash give. And uh, we're pumped you guys came today. I'm very pumped that the, the rain outside is not snow. Um, that would have been absolutely awful. We got enough yesterday to build a snowman, and, and then it melted. So I was very pleased with that. That's about the best case scenario. So I've been growing fascinated here over the last few months of just looking and learning how language shifts over time, about how new words develop in our vernacular, about how uh, we come to understand and see words that used to mean one thing mean a new thing. And then on top of that, over the years, especially here in the last few years, every year, Webster's Dictionary, they add new words that come into our language that maybe were marginally there, but then officially get to be real words in the dictionary. So I thought, I found some of these new words for the year, and I thought I'd quiz you guys on some of these new words and see how young and hip you are uh, on these things. The first word, now, now you can just scream it out, don't worry about it if you know what it is. Uh, the first word we're going to throw on the screen is bougie. <laughs> Who knows what bougie means? Come on. What do we mean? Do you know what it means? It means you? You're bougie? Okay. Okay. So that term, if you didn't know, that means it's short for bourgeois, which means I'm marked by a concern for wealth, possessions, and respectability. So bougie is something the kids say these days. The second one I genuinely did not know. This one is TLDR. That's in the dictionary, even though that's not an actual word. Well, we got one. Too long, didn't read. So I guess you put that, like if somebody posts something on Facebook and it's really long, you put TLDR on there. I don't know. This one's easier. Even you, even you old folks might know this one. Adorbs. Anybody know what adorbs means? It means cute, adorable. It's short for adorable. And then the final one I want to throw out here is mansplain. Anybody know what mansplain means? Let me explain that Okay. A man just tried to mansplain us all. So mansplain, if you didn't know, uh, if you don't know the definition, women, I'm sure you probably have heard what it is, is that you, a, a man decides to take it upon himself to explain something to a woman in a condescending way. I'm sure that doesn't happen in this room in anyone's life whatsoever. So those are some, those are some of the words that were added to the dictionary, and it's not just words that that means something new. It's that old words take on different understandings. Now, one of those that I'm fascinated by, and it was actually added to the dictionary this year too, is dumpster fire. Now, when you hear dumpster fire, what do you think? It's a disaster. It's the worst possible thing. You know, 20 years ago, a dumpster fire meant a fire in a dumpster, and that's all that it was. But now, when I see a picture of a dumpster fire, I think, oh my gosh, something must have went really wrong. And even older, back into the 1500s and 1600s, the word awful, that word literally, as it was brought out, meant full of awe and inspiration, and, and worshipful even. So a few hundred years ago, if you came up to me afterwards and said, Justin, your sermon was awful, I would, I would blush and I would say, thank you so, so much. That's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. If you say that to me today, I'm going to go pout and watch football and, uh, and cry about it probably a little bit. No, I'm just kidding. 
So words have these shifts in meaning um, to, to mean something else. And if we're not incredibly careful, like words can cause us to, to, be, to be lost in translation. We could say something and think it means one thing, but in reality, culturally, it means something very different. There's a perfect example of this, and that is the word church. Now, when I say the word church, I think you probably come with a lot of different definitions, with a lot of different understandings that you've brought in here. Culturally, for us, nowadays, church essentially means that it's a service that we attend or it is a building that we go to. Now, think about it. This morning, you probably got up and said, we are what? Going to church. Or you will say afterwards, if somebody asks you, how was Church, because the understanding that we know first and foremost is the fact that church is somewhere I go and the service that I attend within that. That's what we have come to understand church to be. But this is widely accepted against the original definition of what church actually is. In the New Testament, we see this Greek word, ekklesia, which literally means called out ones. It wasn't a religious word when it was first used in the New Testament. It was actually a very common word in the Roman world, and it meant when a group of people gathered together for a purpose. They were called out for something greater than themselves. They were called together. And the New Testament understanding of the word church is not a service, even though we gather for a service, and it's not a building that we walk into, even though we do gather inside a building. Church, according to the New Testament is people. Church is people, plain and simple. There is nothing clearer in the New Testament. And the more you read in the New Testament, the more it becomes clear that these called out ones, we had a particular understanding of ourselves as we developed as a faith community. And that's because the primary metaphor for the church in the New Testament is what? A family. Over and over again, you see that God was not just calling together a crowd. He was calling together and starting a family. That's huge. So as we started 2019 as a church, we're in this this vision series about our core identities. We're calling it identities because we believe that action comes out of identity, that not, not starting with action, but we start with who we are because who we are forms what we do. So last week we said we are disciples, that was our first identity, that we are all followers of Jesus and that's foundational and it's central to our community. And this week our second identity is based on this understanding as a church, and that is this, we are family. For us, friends, faithfulness as a church has less to do with how great this service is, even though that's important, and more to do with how we're learning to love one another as a family. We see this pattern from the very beginning. As you look at the scriptures, it becomes absolutely clear. In Acts 2, we read about Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit falls on the church, and Peter begins to preach this massive sermon, and 3,000 people become saved. And what do you see next? They say, wow, that was really successful. Let's do another one of those next Sunday and see if we can get 3,000 more people saved. No. What happens directly after this massive conversion is this. Look with me in Acts chapter 2. Starting in verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and they held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now, I don't know about you, but this doesn't look to me like a group of people who is just satisfied with sitting in the same room for an hour each week. It seems like something a little bit deeper than this. This, to me, looks like a family. Where else can you have all things in common despite the diversity of your backgrounds and opinions and still gather together in unity besides a family? And there's so much I could say about this passage. This passage could go deeper and deeper and deeper that there's sharing of possessions that people, when they had a need, someone stepped up and met it. There was alls and signs and wonders that were happening, but I want to focus on two words, two words that happen twice in this passage, and it's the two words, devoted themselves, because that's a very specific Greek word here, proskatero, say that, pros, exactly, it's pretty hard to say, I wanted you to be embarrassed too, and it literally means, what it means is to put your strength together, the two words it means strength towards together. And so what the the definition we have of devoted themselves is a group of people who are not only gathered in a, a group together as a crowd, but they were actually pushing together towards something together. You ever run out of gas or your car broke down on the street and you open up the door and you're trying to do that thing where you're you're steering and pushing the car at the same time? And how awful that is. But then you have some folks that are nice enough to get around and push the car behind you. And you're pushing it up on the road together. And finally, with all of your strength together, you get it to go the right direction. That's what it's talking about in Devote Themselves. A group of people who have strength and are pushing together towards a common vision. The family that they're pushing toward this community and mission that lives life together. And what we see is this common vision leads to common practices. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, meaning the scriptures. They devote themselves to prayer, these spiritual practices. But there's also a devoting themselves. There's also a pushing towards together in very, very specific relational ways. Where if they see a need, they meet it and they spend their lives together. Far beyond one hour that happens a week on Sunday, these people committed, they devoted themselves to living like a family. And this is so massive for us to understand because last week we started with we are disciples and we learned about Jesus telling us about the unforced rhythms of grace, that there are practices that each one of us have that help develop us to be more like Jesus. All of us to be followers of Jesus need practices like scripture and prayer, not as means to impress God, but to be formed to be like Jesus. All of us need those unforced rhythms of grace. And so those are important, but 
But what is just as important is how we are sharing those practices together in devotion, how we are putting our strength together in our faith together towards a common mission and a common purpose. You see, what makes what we practice, it makes us a Christian. But what we practice together makes us a church. I want to say that again because it's huge. What we practice, what we do makes us Christians, but what we do together, what we practice together, what we are pushing towards and devoting ourselves to together, that is what makes us, friends, a church and not just a crowd. We see this from the very beginning as a church that the primary strategy for bringing restoration to the world, for bringing people into the community, wasn't a big evangelism crusade. It wasn't how amazing our service is. It was a life lived together that patiently drew people to Jesus. That when people saw the kind of love they had for one another, they began to take notice. I've been reading this book over the past few months called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. You see a picture over here, one of my favorite books I have ever read, and I'm not exaggerating. And it's this historical account of the early church and how they formed and grew. I don't know if you knew this, but at the time of Jesus' resurrection, there were probably about a thousand or so believers. And within 300 years, there were several million in just 300 years. In the Roman Empire, some estimates say that there may have been up to half of the Roman Empire in just 300 years. How was that? Did it come across because of evangelism crusade? No, what he tells us, Alan Crider in this book, was they simply believed that the life of Jesus, that they lived together, would actually draw people to him. They knew that the love we had for one another was the primary impetus for people coming to know Jesus. Here's what he says here. I love this. He says, it was not primarily what the Christians said that carried weight with outsiders. It was when they, what they did and embodied that was both disconcerting and converting. It was their habitus, meaning their habits, the reflexes and ways of life that suggested that there was another way to perceive reality that made the Christians interesting, challenging, and worth investigating. The early church community was disruptive in their witness to the Roman world because they cared for the poor, they cared for the sick, they cared for the outcast, and when people were discarded, the Christians would take them in. They also were disruptive in that they found unity in their diversity, whereas everyone was separated by their ethnicity and their beliefs that the Christians found a way in Jesus to unite many different types of people together. They were different in the fact that it was common with unwed pregnancies to just throw the baby out into the trash. They would rescue these babies and care for them. The early church father Tertullian would say that the Romans would yell out about the early church, see how they love one another. Wouldn't you love that to be yelled about us? And it should sound familiar because it's the same thing that Jesus told his disciples a few generations before when he says in John 13, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
This is the mark of faith that we leave on the world. The quality and the capacity and the sacrifice of our love, not the kind of services we have, not how steadfast we are in holding our beliefs, not how correct our doctrine is, not by who we vote for. The mark of our lives in this world is the manner in which we choose as a community to love one another. That is the greatest act we can have as a church. People know Jesus is Lord, not by primarily the things that we say in the world, but how well we love and how much people take notice of how well we love. When we love one another like family, when we love our enemies even, the world takes notice. Apologetics is not just arguing the facts about the faith. We believe that love is our primary apologetic in this world. So with that being said, we have to pause because I know that the time we live in is a time when the church in America has not given us much to go on. We have been divisive. We have been curled up with political powers. We have allowed the demons of racism, the demons of division to have their way for so long. And many of us today, let's be honest, we are cynical and we are suspicious of the church. I won't ask you to raise your hand because I don't want to see how many of you do it. Probably many of you. You've seen so many bad examples And from the stories I've heard of people coming in our church, it seems like we end up being a place for folks who are ready to just start again. To dream again about what church could be and not what it is. And that's why you're not going to see us lead with a place of this is what we're like because we're not like them, because that's a place of cynicism. What we're going to do is we're going to cast a vision of who we feel like God's called us to be. On top of the fact that many of us are suspicious about the church, we also live in one of the most individualistic, isolated cultures in human history that is teaching us on a daily basis, separate from people. Go to people who are just like you, and not just go to people who are just like you. Stay on your own. Live from a place of independence and not interdependence. You can go at it alone. You can listen to the podcast. You can get the information. Just try to take upon your spiritual quest by yourself in isolation, or at best, marginally, just with people who look like you and act like you and think like you, so nobody ever pushes you outside of your comfort zone. Combined that with the cynicism we face, it is unlikely, I know, to stand up here and try to convince people that church is the way to go as we move into the future. But you see, I believe that this is the real rebellion. Being Jesus' church in this age and time is a rebellion not only against the status quo of the church in America, it's a rebellion against the isolation of, of loneliness in this culture of living this life together. And the truth is there's no form of Christianity in the scriptures or anywhere else that exists in isolation. Eugene Peterson says, the gospel is never for individuals, but always for a people. Sin fragments us, separates us, and sentences us to solitary confinement. Gospel restores us, unites us, and sets us in community. And the life of faith revealed and nurtured in the biblical narratives is highly personal, but never merely 
individual. What he means by that is you will have a personal relationship with Jesus, but there is no such thing as a private relationship with Jesus. What goes in you will come out eventually because it's made to be shared. It's made to be brought into ourselves with another person. You cannot learn how to love God and you cannot learn how to love your neighbor on your own. Because spiritual growth has always been, from the beginning, a community project. So more than a service, more than an hour on Sunday, as important as it is, and man, the band was leading us, and I was in it today, and I love the way they break up the hard ground in my heart and worship and, and get me ready to receive what God wants to do, but it's so much more. What we do here today is not the end-all, be-all. It is the equipping moment, the empowering moment that sends us out to be the church, to be the family that we were called to be. And so, beyond just what happens on Sunday, there are many, many different opportunities for community at Restoration. And I believe more opportunities in the coming year that will grow. Our primary expression of community here is something called city groups. And these groups, they meet weekly or bi-weekly for a meal and conversation and growing together. My city group on Thursday nights is my lifeblood. I love the family that we have. There's four right now. There's other groups as well. There's, uh, there's recovery groups. Uh, there's stuff that's happening on Wednesday nights with students on UK's campus reaching out to international students. There's a Pints and Parables group that some of our friends are doing on Sunday nights. Uh, we're, we're starting men's and women's groups that are going to be on Sunday morning for folks that can't do anything during the week. We are doing everything we can to provide opportunities for you to get connected and out of spiritual isolation. You can actually go to uh, restorationlex.com slash connect and find what the city groups actually are and how you can get connected in community. But I know for some of us here that's, that's a step too far at this point, whether it be schedules or whatnot. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to, if you can't get connected to one of our city groups or one of our opportunities, we want to find a way to start something. We don't want to find a way to get you connected in something. Even if it's just a few people meeting over coffee or hanging out, we want to make sure we equip you and empower you not to live your life in isolation, but get connected to live as a family here at Restoration. I don't know what that looks like. I just know that we're passionate about making sure you have an opportunity. And for some of us, let's be honest, I know it's scary to take that step, to walk into a house or walk into somewhere where these people are meeting for the first time. You don't know if we're going to fit. You don't know if we're going to connect. It happens to everyone. It's awkward maybe for a few weeks. But listen, when it comes and when you begin to live like family, things begin to change. So to close today, I want to give us four things that I want to encourage us all to do to take that next step. Because there's, there's really for us not a question of whether we should live in family. It's a question of how are we going to take that next step and live that way. There's four marks of living in a spiritual family. The first thing we need to do is we need to be intentional. Community doesn't happen accidentally. It takes us stepping out and taking a risk, and getting connected, even if it's hard. 
So be intentional. The second thing is be consistent. Aristotle said that we are what we repeatedly do. And so no matter how many times we get connected to someone else, if we don't do it consistently, it's not going to make any difference in our lives. So not only do we need to be intentional about connecting community, but we have to do it regularly and consistently in a way that shapes us into the type of people we want to be. The third thing is be relational. Don't just sit in a room together and talk about what you learned about the Bible last week. Somebody needs to know you. Somebody needs to know your hurt. And you need to know somebody else's hurt. You need to be vulnerable to someone and open up into your life so that you can be cared for and care for others in times of brokenness. Be intentional. Be consistent. Be relational. And finally, be formational. Don't just give out spiritual information and expect that to change anything. Do things together. Practice the way of Jesus together and formational practices. One of the things I want to encourage us, if you're in a city group this week, one thing I want to encourage us to do is talk to your group whenever you meet next about what are the intentional things that we can do together to form us. What practices can we do, not just on our own, but what can we do together? Because I believe that the hope of our world, the hope of our church, the hope of our city is... The ability that we have to learn to love one another like a family. Notice I am not up here pretending like that is easy. If any of you have a family, it's not very easy, is it? There's a bunch of fruit nuts. There's weird ones. There's creepy ones. There's ones that share too much on Facebook, weird political stuff. But you know what you do? You forgive and you love them anyway. You open yourself up to them. And I know a lot of us here have bad family lives, bad experiences. And I think that's one of the absolute beauties of the church. Is that no matter how bad your family is, you belong here. You belong to this family. You belong to a people that's been united, not in what we have together in common, but united in Jesus. And united in his hope and his love for us. So the challenge today as we close is I don't know what that next step looks like for you. It may be taking one of these cards and filling it out finally and checking on there, I need to get involved in a city group. I'm interested in a city group. If you do that this week, we will connect with you via email or phone, and we will find a way to get you connected. Or maybe you need to write on there, I don't, none of these group times work. I want to start something new, or even I'm interested in starting a new group. Let's do it. Everybody gets to play. You don't need some kind of seminary degree to do this. You just need a willingness to be able to learn how to love one another and love God. That's it. So whatever that may be, whatever that next step is, I pray that today Jesus calls you out of isolation and gives you the opportunity to connect to family. So Father, we, we come to you today realizing that you made us to belong to one another. And God, I know that the, 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 the hurts and the pains of relationships in the past or even church in the past has made us cynical or scared. God, we're not trying to be the perfect response to what's broken in the world. We just want to be the messy, beautiful place where grace begins to take action as we learn to love one another. 
So God, I pray today that, that you supernaturally in this coming year, beyond just a crowd that gathers here, you supernaturally move us closer and closer together by love. And you make us into a family. And God, may we be the kind of people that invite the world around us into this family for a place to belong, for a place to believe, for a place to become. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys go ahead and stand. We're going to take a time of response here. We're going to start by singing and, and with prayer. Um, we're going to have some folks in the back, back there, that would love to pray with you. I'm going to be over here in the corner. Um, if, if you just feel lonely or isolated, you don't know how to take that next step, I just want to encourage you, whether it's back there or up here, if we can pray with you about anything, take that next step in following Jesus. Somebody did that last week for the first time, said, I'm going to take that next step and follow Jesus. If that's you, come on up here. We want to, we want to help you take that next step. Whatever it may be, let's respond to what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us now. So let's sing together.